Let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer together. Let us pray. Crucified, died, and was buried. Risen, ascended, and seated with his Father in glory. And Lord Jesus, Scripture teaches that those of us who know Christ, believe in him, and follow him, have risen, ascended, and been seated in the heavenly places along with him. Now, as we consider this teaching from your word together, may we know, understand, experience, and live out these truths in our lives and in this church. Amen. I would be most pleased if you would turn with me in, uh, back in your Bible or in the church Bible, which will not be too far away from you, to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. And this is page 1174 in those church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Um, I'm especially keen that you check and make sure that what I say this evening um, comes from this passage. Because I wouldn't dare say some of the things I'm about to say to you unless I myself were convinced that I'm uttering God's truth from God's word and not my own opinions and thoughts. But more of that anon. What do the following have in common, would you say? Restorations. Homes under the hammer. House doctors. Grand designs. Tattoo fixes, embarrassing bodies, and DIY SOS. I haven't confessed, I haven't seen many episodes of any of those, but I'm sure you recognise some or all of them as TV programmes that have as their theme some kind of transformation, some kind of makeover. But I've never yet, and I don't expect to discover a TV programme that demonstrates the kind of makeover that Scripture talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Because no TV programme can demonstrate a transformation from death to life. And that's precisely the makeover that Paul is talking about here a transformation from death to life. I was just thinking as we sang some of those uh, songs and and some of the other ways in which uh, Scripture speaks of the transformation that takes place when one believes in, uh, trusts in Jesus Christ, uh, Scripture has a number of other pictures uh, that it uses. Uh, It uses the picture of moving from darkness to light. Uh, from uh, poverty to riches, from a quicksand to 
standing on a rock, from being far away from God to, being, to coming close to God. A number of different pictures, but the most drastic and radical of all the pictures that the Bible uses for the transformation that takes place when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ is this one, from death to life. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul talks about the before, the death, and the after, the life. If you would like just a phrase to focus on within this passage, then we perhaps find it in verse 5. We cut it right down to its bare bones. Verse 5 says this in part, God made us alive even when we were dead. God made us alive even when we were dead. So let's look, first of all, at the bad news, the before, this deadness of which Paul talks about. And he describes, in expounding this idea, what it means to be dead, he describes a threefold tyranny. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to that famous unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but not quite in that order. Paul talks, first of all, about the tyranny of the world. Do you see with me in verse 2? He says, you followed the ways of this world. And when scripture uses the the, the word world in this sense, then What it means, and I I came across this definition many years ago, and it's the most helpful I found about what scripture means when it talks about the world. It means this. The world means those places, persons, pleasures, and pursuits where God is left out. The world is those places, persons, pleasures pleasures, and pursuits where God is left out. And when you think about how in our own society God has been, uh, such efforts have been made to push God to the margins, to the edges of society, the world is a pretty big place. And what Paul is saying here is that those without Christ are following the ways of this world. They are slaves to secularism, to materialism, to peer pressure, to religious fads, and also to the dubious role models set by celebrities. The tyranny of the world. That's one part, one aspect of this deadness. The second tyranny is the tyranny of the devil, also in verse 2, where Paul says, you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is, at now at, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Clearly he means Satan, the devil. And part of the idea here, in talking about the devil as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, part of the idea seems to be that the devil and his schemes for defacing God's good creation are sort of in the air as a kind of atmosphere certainly in the very atmosphere 
of certain places. Some places more than others. A room, perhaps, or an organisation, or even a city. The tyranny of the devil. He is in the air, and his influence is inescapable. But there's also thirdly, as part of this, what it means to be dead, the tyranny of the flesh. If it's simply the tyranny of the world and the devil, we could blame other people and other things. It's, it's just my culture, it's my society, the world made me do it, or the devil made me do it. But Paul won't allow that by saying that a part, a big part of the problem is within ourselves. Um, our sinful nature translates what might be called the flesh. Gratifying, in verse 3, do you see that? Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, that's the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Now, it's quite often argued these days that because desires, let's take sexual desires, for example, seem or are natural to us, that it would be put wrong to put any kinds of restraints on them. God made me that way, we might even argue. But in fact, of course, that's absurd. It's like saying that because it's natural to want food, we should eat what we like and how much we like, regardless of its effect on others or its effect on our own health. Or it would be like saying that because some people, men especially, are naturally aggressive, it's okay for them to go around punching people on the nose. No, Paul says that our desires and thoughts are a part of our sinful nature and need to be curbed, controlled, restrained and tamed and in fact transformed by God's Holy Spirit. A threefold tyranny then of the world, of the devil and of the flesh in verses 2 and 3 with the result also in verse 3 that we were by nature objects of wrath. And once again, that theme has cropped up at least once in the songs that we have been singing already in our service. It is a, um, uh, it's an awkward uh, and yet fundamental truth of Scripture that our need of transformation, our need of a major, major makeover can be described in terms of being objects of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. We are liable to it and we deserve it. God's wrath being his settled opposition to anything that is contrary to his holy nature. And the reason I put all of this under the heading of being dead is because of Paul's summary statement in verse 1, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I want to say just a few more things uh, about this condition of of being dead in trespasses and sins. It is, for one thing, an absolute condition. You can't be more or less dead, can you? Think about it. 
You can be good, better, and best. You can be dumb, dumber, and dumbest. But you can't be dead, deader, and deadest. It's an absolute condition. Of course, the unbeliever, the person without Christ, may not look very dead. The late uh, John Stott, great Christian teacher that he was, commenting on this passage, uh, says, uh, points out that a person may have the body of an athlete, the mind of a scholar, or the personality of a stand-up comedian, but in the sphere which matters supremely, which is not the body, or the mind, or the personality, but the soul, they have no life. It's an absolute condition. It's also a universal condition. I wonder if you noticed how Paul moves as he goes through this passage from describing, um, uh, uh, talking about you in verses 1 and 2. You were dead. But then he talks in verse 3 about we. He starts to include himself. But then also in verse 3, he starts talking about all of us. It's everybody, without exception. It's a universal condition. It applies to everyone. In fact, the only difference between that pillar of our community and that convicted paedophile is in the state of decay. This is not to say that the pillar of the community can do no good, nor is it to say that the convicted paedophile is as bad as he could be. But it is to say that both, without Christ, are, now to use a slightly different expression that Paul uses also in this letter, that both are separated from the life of God, alienated from God in Christ, strangers, foreigners, it's a universal condition. And you know, the more reflective and insightful, even of those who are not Christian believers, when they examine their hearts, will agree with this. I don't suppose there was a more admired uh, person in the last century than the great Indian leader, Mahatma Gandhi. If anybody could be regarded as a saint outside of Christ, then surely it was Gandhi. But in the introduction to his autobiography, Gandhi said this, I hope to acquaint the reader fully with all my faults and errors. Measuring myself by the standard of truth, I must exclaim, where is there a wretch so wicked and loathsome as I? I have forsaken my maker, so faithless, have I been? Paul is talking here about an absolute condition and a universal condition. And he's also talking about a helpless condition. Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher known as the father of utilitarianism. That's something to live up to, I suppose. Um, he gave a sum of money to University College London on the stipulation that after his death, um, 
warning, something slightly gruesome is about to be <laughs> is about to come up. That after his death, his head and skeleton should be preserved and put on public display. And there is a legend that once a year he is wheeled into the annual council meeting and the chairman announces Jeremy Benson present but not voting. Well, of course he's not voting. Jeremy Bentham can't raise a hand or raise a glass or raise a smile. He can't do anything because he's dead and he's been dead for nearly 200 years. Dead people are helpless people. The house is not merely in disrepair, it's in ruins. The patient does not merely have a weak pulse, the patient has no pulse. The ship has not merely sprung a leak, it has sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And obviously, a collapsed house cannot rebuild itself. A pulseless patient cannot resuscitate himself. And a sunken ship cannot raise itself from its watery grave, can it? Clearly, we need help from outside if we are dead. And so we move finally from before dead in trespasses and sins to after. What does Paul say in verses 4 to 10 about after? I'd like to really underline as forcibly as I can two words in verse 4. And they are the words, but God. I cannot think of two more powerful words in the whole of the Bible than those two words, but God. Think about it, reflect on it, pray it it through. When you don't know what else to say to God in your worry or your despair, say to him, but you... But you have said, but you have done, but you have promised, and see where it takes you. But God, verse 5, made us alive with Christ. What? We were dead, but now God has made us alive. He has, verse 6, raised us up with Christ. And also in verse 6, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's the after. That's what God has done. And the whole point of Paul's teaching here is to say that what God did for Christ, take his dead body, bring it to life, raise it up, and seat him with God in the heavenly places. God has done with us and to us with Christ and in Christ. There is a superhuman power at work here. Glance back to chapter 1 and verse 19 and following. Paul is already talking about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, he says, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that was at work in raising Christ is now at work in raising you and I as we believe and trust in Christ. Think about it like this. If you can take yourself in your imagination to the coast, let's say to the north Norfolk coast and wells next to the sea. Some of you know, many of you know the place I'm talking about, where there's a kind of estuary. And when the tide is out, 
and the sea can't be seen, there might be really quite a a large ocean-going ship stranded there on the sand. And also a number of other much smaller dinghies. They're all stranded there. But now the tide comes in, and the same tide that raises the big ship and refloats it also raises those little dinghies, however many of them there are. The same power that raised Christ also raises those who are in Christ and with Christ. I want to ask this evening, why did God do it? Why did God do this great act of power and mercy for us? Why did he do it? Firstly, because of his great love for us. Do you see that in verse 4? Because of his great love for us. And where can we begin? Indeed, where can we end with reflecting on God's great love? Why does God love us? Why does God think I'm worthy of love, of worth loving, or you worth loving? And you know, he never explains it. He never explains it. It's inexplicable. It's beyond us. There's a wonderful um, passage back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7 and following, which says this when uh, uh, referring to God's love for his people. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all people's. It was because the Lord loved you. And do you see what that's saying? The Lord loved you, loves you, because he loves you. And there's no more to be said about it than that. You may think that you are the most loveless or unloved or unloveworthy person in the world. You might be right for all, I'm, for all I know. But God doesn't even begin to explain. He just says, I love you as I love the world. And this is why I've done this for you. He does it because of his great love for us. Why else did God do this? Secondly, verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God has the future in mind here. And from now on, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a trophy. You are a gold medal. God did all of this so that you and I might be exhibit A of his love and kindness, just as a painting witnesses to the skill of the artist or a patient to the skill of the surgeon. Why else did God do it? Thirdly, and now negatively, God did this not because of works. Verse 9, he did it not because of works, not because of anything that we, might, uh, that we might do. You know, the feeling that we must make a contribution to our own salvation runs very, very deep. Let me take the world's favourite um, uh, musical, Sound of Music. Julie Andrews finally marries, her, um, uh, marries the, uh, the, 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 the captain. And as she gazes up at his, uh, at his face... She sings the following. Nothing comes from nothing. See, I know this by heart. (laughs) Pathetic, really, isn't it? Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. 
pathetic. Or if you want something a bit more uh, contemporary, uh, a couple of years ago, Glastonbury had a little corner um, dedicated to heaven and hell. I'm not going to describe the hell for you, but like most descriptions of hell, it sounds a lot more interesting than their heaven. (laughs) But uh, here's what they said about heaven. If If you'd like to spend an evening in heaven, where the sofas are trimmed with fur and the bars have working fountains, you must first convince an admin angel that you are worthy of the honour. You see, that idea of dessert, just can't get away from it. And as a, as a small boy, I remember going to a Christian camp before I knew Christ uh, for myself and my own experience, and one of the leaders asked me a question, and the question was, Jonathan, are you a Christian? And my knee-jerk reaction was this, I try to be. I try to be. It's not because of anything that we can do, any effort that we can make. It's not because of works. Why else did God do all of this? Verse 10. We are God's workmanship, a kind of recreation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, do you see, Paul has just rejected out of hand good works as a means of commending ourselves to God, but now he puts them in their place, good works, as a means of expressing gratitude to the, free work of, to the work of free grace that God has done in us and for us as a means of expressing gratitude to a loving and gracious God, good works, works of kindness, generosity, mercy, and all the rest of it, follow inevitably as day follows night, as spring follows winter, and as carts follow horses. But we mustn't, of course, put the cart before the horse or you'll end up in a grand muddle. But you do need to make sure, if you, uh, if you confessed uh, uh, faith in Christ, you do need to make sure that your, ha- your horse is pulling a, a well-laden cart. Time, I think, for a conclusion. I walked past a house recently that displayed a, that displayed a board saying, let agreed... Another happy ending. And I kind of scratch my head on that. If a let is agreed on a house, is that a happy ending? It also ought to be a happy beginning. It's not an ending. It's, well, it's an ending of one, one thing, but the beginning is something else. And I think we can say that also about coming to faith in Christ. It's both a happy ending, you have closed with Christ. You have found salvation. You've been brought from death to life. But it's also a happy and a very happy beginning. It's a, a happy ending. It's the end of death. It's the end of the tyranny of the world, the flesh and the devil. It's the end of condemnation, the end of being subject to God's wrath. But it's also the beginning of a great adventure. A man wrote to his wife on the very day that he came to faith in Christ, and he wrote this. 
There has been a complete change in my life. Now my whole life and aims and ambitions are changed. I now feel that I want to serve God in any way that he can use me. And that seems to my mind to mark the beginning of a great adventure and one in which we can all share as we move from death to life and from a happy ending as we find faith in Christ to a happy beginning in the Christian life together. Let us pray. Father, may we have the honesty with you and with ourselves to accept what you say about our condition outside of Christ, but not to wallow in that, not to be in despair because of that, but rather to look to the only solution, to the love and power of God in Christ that lifts us up to new life and to this new adventure of life in and life with Christ. Amen.